Well, if this is your first week here, what we've been doing the last several weeks ever since Easter is we're looking at the times when Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection from the dead. So he was raised to life on Easter Sunday, and then for 40 days, uh, eyewitnesses say that he appeared to them in bodily form and interacted with them. And while he interacted them with them in different ways, what we see with each person is that he gave them all the gift of hope. It, it was in many different ways to many different people. It all started on Easter morning where Jesus appeared to, to Mary and uh, he gave her this gift of a bigger hope than she even came there for. She hoped to give Jesus' body a proper burial, but what she was faced with was Jesus raised from the dead. Sometimes our hopes aren't too big, but they're too small. All the way to last week when we saw how Jesus appeared to his disciples on the beach and had breakfast on the beach. And how Jesus filled them with hope in that moment to realize that even in the mundane, there is hope and greater purpose. So if you missed out on any of those messages, I encourage you to go to our website and go ahead and check those out. And um, what we're going to do today is finish out this series by looking at Jesus, what you could say is his final appearance, but kind of an abnormal appearance at the same time. I felt that one of the things you take away from this series is as you've seen all the different ways Jesus appeared to people, and by the way, if, if you weren't here, this is kind of a good summary for where we've been and, and what, we've, what we've taken away. What we've seen is that Jesus shared a hope that changed eternities, number one on your sheet, but more than that or equal to that, he also shared a hope that transformed people's lives in the meantime. Jesus did not stand up on Sunday morning and say, here's a message that will get you to heaven. He did that. But then he also appeared to people on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and said, here's a hope that will transform your life in the meantime. He gave a hope that did both things. And so today as we wrap up this series, whether this is your first time or your fifth time listening to the messages in the series, I want to maybe wrap things up by offering a couple of questions that will see, help you gauge where you're at in this whole process. Because when it comes to, sh to hope that changes eternities and transforms lives, everyone in the room might be in a little bit of a different place. The first question I want you to think about is this one. Is hope for real? Is this hope for real that Jesus is talking about? And what I love about this question is it's objective. It's outside of you. Did Jesus come back to life or not? Are the eyewitnesses reliable or not? Did this happen? Is this hope for real? And what I hope is that as we've gone through all these people in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, you can look at that and say, the evidence is overwhelmingly yes. Nothing explains what happened after Jesus' death other than the fact that Jesus must have come back to life. So is this hope for real? Again, objective outside of you, you could say, sure, this is real, this is true. You can make the argument that Jesus came back from the dead and he gives a different kind of hope. But this next question is a little bit harder because you can't look at facts or evidence to give an answer. The answer is more within you. You have to ask the question in the wake of what we've seen, is, is this a hope that's for me? Is this a hope that I don't just believe is factually true and historically accurate, but is this a truth and is this a hope that has imprint, imprinted itself into my very heart and soul? Is the hope that Jesus gave on Resurrection Day, is that a hope that forms my thoughts, shapes my words, 
arranges my behavior, changes my plans. Or another way to ask this is is simply this. What difference does this hope have on your story? Now, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm, I kind of geek out about preaching. So th- throughout the week, one of the things I usually do is I listen to two or three pastors preach, whether it's on a podcast or on YouTube. Does anyone else out there like to listen to preachers preach? You're doing it right now. I hope, whether you like it or not, you're, you're doing it. You listen to preachers preach. And one thing I've noticed is that when it comes to what the world would call successful preachers or popular preachers, which... I don't buy into that, but when it comes to the more compelling ones, what you see in them is they acknowledge there's a hope that isn't just real, but there's a hope that's for them. Like some of the preachers tell their stories about how they went through this period in their life where they didn't know anything about God, anything about Jesus. All the decisions they made were completely self-focused and completely destructive to themselves and those around them. But then they all have this twisting part in the plot where they say, but there was that one crazy friend who invited me to their church. There was that one crazy person who sat down with me and told me about Jesus. And the moment I heard about forgiveness and grace, my life changed. And you see these compelling stories out there. And I just have to tell you, I don't have that. You see, I grew up, like many of you, under the umbrella of Jesus' forgiveness and transformation. There was never a moment in my life where I wasn't being taught about Jesus and and what he did for me. And so my transformation didn't have a dark side and a light side. It's just been this gradual God working in me thing throughout my life. And many of you have that same thing. You're, You're thinking, I don't know how much my hope is for me because I don't really have a compelling story to tell about it. So here's where we're going to end today, and here's how we're going to end the series. We're going to look at an individual who underwent an amazing transformation. I don't know everything about you, but what I do know is the person we're going to look at today was transformed more than anyone in this room, anyone listening, anyone watching this message. But at the heart of his transformation was one thing that you have in common with him. And here's where I want to go with this. The name of this message is Eyes to See. When it comes to the hope that is for you, it's not about the words you say. It's more about the things you see. It's not about having something to say. It's more about the something that you see. And what you get to see is very similar to what a man about 2,000 years ago got to see for himself. We're going to look at a guy named Saul. And his story is so incredible and so transformational. It will outweigh and outperform any other story we could possibly pull from this room. Saul was a man, a young man, as we're going to find him, about 30 years old. But this was a man who was very, very rooted in the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, and especially the Jewish law. This man was a Pharisee. Although we don't really see him entering the pages of scripture until Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. It isn't until after all of that that we actually see his name mentioned at all. But he underwent such an amazing transformation that it was only fitting for him to undergo a transformation of his name as well. 
And the way his name was transformed is just incredible. He went from Saul to Paul. A small shift in the English language at least, but one that denotes a new person and a new man. You might know him as the Apostle Paul, one who wrote the, about a third of the New Testament. But if you're not familiar with the Bible, what you might not know is that the same person who wrote a third of the New Testament that's in our Bibles today, at one time wanted to destroy anyone who spoke about Jesus in public. We're about to look at an episode where Saul went from this man who hated Christianity to a man who devoted his life to planting Christian churches throughout the Mediterranean area. And before we look at this one moment, I want to fast forward to about 20 years in the future where Saul looks back and he gives you this insight in one of his other letters. Saul wrote this. He said, last of all, he he was going through all the people Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 people at once. He appeared to his brother James. Hey, James, I'm alive. He appeared to all these people. And then Saul says, last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I should not be where I am, but it is by the grace of God I am what I am. And as Saul, Paul looks back at his life, he recognizes that some 20, 25 years before this, he was no apostle. He was a persecutor. In fact, the first time we see this come out is when a man named Stephen took the scene. And Stephen, after the resurrection of Jesus, went out with this joy and peace and energy, sharing with people what Jesus had done and how he's the Messiah of the world. But it seems that the Jewish leaders did not want him prying people away from the temple to this person named Jesus. And so in what seems to be this narrow gap of history where Pilate was taken out of office, you know, the Roman uh, office. So there was no Roman overseer in the area at that time. And so for this very narrow window, until Pilate was replaced, the Jewish leaders had this unusual freedom to not only proclaim a death sentence on someone, but to actually carry it out without having to get permission from the Romans. And so as Stephen is out there proclaiming about Jesus, tearing people away from this ancient tradition of being focused on the law, rather than being focused on God, the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, took action. And they stoned Stephen to death. They took rocks and they pelted him with them until he died. And Saul participated in the worst role you can imagine. He was not one who was picking up stones to throw them at Stephen. He was the one holding people's coats. And as each man passed by to put their coat in his arms so that they could go and stone Stephen, Saul gave his nod of approval. Go get him. Go get him. Kill him. Stone him. He deserves to die. Each person who stoned Stephen would stop by Saul for approval. And Saul stood there to give it happily. And then we get into Acts chapter 9 as the story unfolds and how Christianity was being persecuted and, and Saul is playing a part in that. And we get to Acts chapter 9 verse 1 where it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. He was still just known for every ounce of his being wanting to get, do away with these people called Christians. He was still breathing out these murderous threats against the Lord's people. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, 
what you might not know is with geography over there, Jerusalem was a long way from Damascus. It's about a five-hour car ride modern day. Imagine what it's like to walk. This was a long journey. He was asking for letters, basically asking for some sort of a warrant, which we'll see in just a moment. But what we see in this is that Saul was very, very zealous for what he was about to do. In modern-day terms, this was going to be a foreign mission trip, a long-journey mission trip. He was going to go out to a place that needed to be corrected or needed some help, and he was going to bring that help. So he was asking for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, and here's what he was asking for, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, which is an old way of referring to Christians, whether men or women, without discrimination, that he might take them as prisoners all the way back to Jerusalem. This was no small feat that Saul wanted to undertake, but he was so zealous, he was so convinced that these Christians were taking people away from God. He did not buy into this whole resurrection myth. And maybe that's what he has in common with some of you today. Isn't it kind of crazy to think that an entire movement started because people say they saw a dead man alive? Saul didn't buy it. So here's how the story continues. As he neared Damascus on his journey, so long of a trip, how many days, how many weeks, perhaps months that he traveled, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, something that can only be explained as this, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, I know you, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Now just imagine this is you. We don't use the word persecute very often. So what if you heard a voice from heaven say, hey, why are you bullying me? Hey, why are you messing with me? Why are you trying to stop me? And it's in this moment where Saul is flung to the ground, blinded by this bright light, hearing this voice from heaven, that he asks a question that we can't quite make sense of. He said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Saul says, who are you, Lord? Now there's debate whether Lord should be capitalized or not. Maybe he's just saying sir or someone who is an authority over him. But what we know is that Saul had no idea what was going on. Lord, I'm not persecuting you. I'm serving you. I'm protecting your name. These people in Damascus are trying to pull people away from you. So who, who are we talking about here? What do you mean persecuting? Who are you, Lord, he asked. And it goes on. I am Jesus. And those English words, three words, his heart must have stopped. To hear the voice of the one that you've been persecuting against could only be bad news for you. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city the city that you were going to go to to persecute my people, and you will be told what you must do. This had to be totally breathtaking for him, his heart stopping. The one he was working against was now ordering him around. What would be in store for Saul? So he got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing that he was blinded. So his companions with him, they led him by the hand into Damascus. And get this, for three days he was blind. 
you, you've probably been temporary, temporarily blinded by s- some things, you know, a few seconds for a bright light or a flash goes off. Imagine the uncertainty of being blind for three days. Is this a new normal? And more than that, the spiritual and the emotional questions going through his mind, what have I done? If blindness is the only thing that happens to me, I will be lucky. So for three days, he was blind. And for three days, he did not eat or drink anything. Because how can you eat or drink when your place before God is called into question? Now, there's something from this that I I want you to take away from also. Because when it comes to Saul, he was unique, one of a kind. At least I assume none of you have gone to Damascus to persecute Christians there. Um, But what often happens with us today is that we need to be corrected in other ways. God could not have Saul go to Damascus to destroy his church. God had a different plan for him. Saul thought what he was doing was pleasing to God and according to God's will, but he needed to be corrected. In some ways, in smaller ways perhaps, you are exactly the same. You have been going down a path that you thought was good for God, that you thought was pleasing to him. But he needs to step in and correct it. Perhaps there's been an attitude in your mind that you thought was good and right on track and where it's supposed to be. But when God looks down, he sees something that needs to be corrected. What you see from Saul is important. When God wants to shape you, It devastated Saul. It devastated him because he was blind for three days. He wouldn't eat for three days. He was a wreck. He was devastated. But while Saul was devastated, he was not destroyed. Those whom God wants to shape may be devastated for a moment, but they will not be destroyed. The reshaping that God wants to do, number number two on your sheet, the reshaping that God wants to do, it will bend you, but it will not break you. And when you find yourself in a season of life where it seems like the plan that you had and the ideas that you wanted to get through that are being challenged on every side, take comfort in this. Maybe God is reshaping you. And if so, the reshaping God does will not break you. It will bend you and it will challenge you. And it may cause you to rethink about the things you've been doing and ask the question, is this really the way God wants me to go? The reshaping that God did for Saul, it bent him, but it did not break him. And as we go on in his story, we're going to see how God, in mercy and in grace, in ways that Saul didn't deserve, how God was taking care of him even during the bending, even during the devastation. Here's how the story continues. So in Damascus, there for three days, blind, without eating, there was a disciple named Ananias, and just... You need to put yourself in Ananias' shoes for just a second because what he's going to be asked to do was just unheard of. The, the Lord called to Ananias in a vision. So Jesus talking to Ananias in a vision. Ananias, getting his attention. Yes, Lord, he answered. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. In modern day terms, this was the house number. This was the street name. This was the city. This was the state. This was the zip code. Here's the exact address. Go there and ask for a man. Oh, some man from Tarsus. Oh, what was his name? Saul. Go look for a man named Saul. He 
He's there. And just in this moment, keep this in mind. When you go to the chief priests in Jerusalem and when you ask for letters to to synagogues giving permission to arrest Christians, that is not a private hearing. This was a public thing that people heard about and murmurings and news went out about what Saul was intending to do. And so now Ananias is being told, hey, Saul from Tarsus is here. He's been here for three days. Here's the address. Google it. You know where he is. And by the way, he is praying. He thinks he's here on a mission for God. He is praying. Next verse. In a vision, Saul has seen a man by your name come and place his hands on him. Like the Bart Simpson, you know, Homer thing. No, not your hands on him to destroy him or to, to choke him, but to restore his sight. He saw a man by your name come to restore his sight. And what we're about to see is so much more than a blind man being able to see again. What we're going to find is a man seeing things for the first time ever. You will restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this guy and all the harm he has done to your holy people. I've, I've heard the news of what he's done, and it isn't good. He's got a track record. Any of you can, maybe some of you can uh, relate to that. Uh, people in, in your high school, they know what I was like. People in college, they've got some stories. Um, people at my work, they know a different version of me. They've heard reports about who, who you are. And so there's some similarity here to what God is about to do for Saul and what God is doing in you right now. I've, I've heard reports about all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here. Jesus, maybe you need some information on high. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. If he's blind, let's leave him that way. If he's starving himself, perfect. Problem solved. But Jesus responded and said, Ananias, my purpose is not to destroy this man who's devastated. My purpose is to redirect him. I'm going to take this persecutor and take him and and turn him into a proclaimer because when my grace is shown in him, it will be clear to the world that my grace is good for anyone. So the Lord continues, go, stop telling me what I already know Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to the people who don't know God, to their kings, to their governors, and also to the people of Israel. This is my chosen instrument. And by the end of the day, the reason I want you to give him his sight back is because of this. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. No longer will he persecute because of my name. Now he will proclaim my name and he himself will suffer for it. He will be compelled to lay down his life for what he is about to see for the first time. Now there's something unique about Saul in this moment where he was ready to receive 
what God was sharing with him, what Jesus was sharing with him. Um, quick side note, this is a, a message for another day, a sermon for another day, but one day Jesus was preaching to the people, and as he was preaching, he told a parable about preaching. So it's like inception, Pre- preaching inside of preaching. Anyway, he's, he's preaching this, this parable about preaching while preaching to the people, and the main point of his parable was that the, the word of God, when, when God tells people things, it's like a farmer who's scattering seed. And the, the seed is all the same. It doesn't change. But what does change is the soil that it lands on. Jesus gave several different types of soil, all the way from the soil that's rocky, where there's really no dirt at all. It just falls on the rocks, and birds come and snatch it away. And then there's the good soil, where the seeds fall down, they take root, and they produce a crop. And in, in, this, in this midst of this, this parable, Jesus conveys this spiritual truth that there is no difference between the seed, the truth, or what God wants to show people or what he wants to teach people. The difference is in how it can be received. And what I know is true any time you get a group of people, some of you came in the doors today not ready to receive a thing. I've been where you're at. You walk in and you say, I don't care what this church has to say. I don't really want to hear about this God thing. I'm not receptive. And no matter how good the preacher is, we could have Ben up here, you know, the greatest preacher in the world. But if you're not ready to receive what is being preached, what is being sown, it makes no difference. Here's what I want to leave you with today. Maybe just to challenge some of you. When God shows you something, whether that's through some guy preaching to you, whether it's through a friend who has something to share with you, whether it's through just something you read from the Bible, when God shows you something, he has a desired outcome for it. When the farmer plants the seed, he wants it to grow. In the context of Saul, what God wanted to show him, God wanted to sow in him. And for you and for me, God wants to sow in you what he shows to you. If there comes a moment in your life where you realize that the the hope that God has given you should transform your life, but that might require to reshape your life, would you be open to that? Would you let God himself speak into your life when the path you've decided is good, he declares to be no good? And what I can tell you is this. When you enter God's presence with good soil, his seed does amazing things. As we see that play out in Saul's life, you'll never imagine how his story would unfold. If you're reading this for the first time, you would never guess how this seed planted in him would grow. Here's how it carried out, verse 17. Ananias went to the house, entered it, he placed his hands on Saul, and he said, brother, not enemy, not potential brother, brother Saul, the Lord That is, Jesus, the one who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. No, I wasn't there stalking you. Jesus himself told me what he did while you were on the road. So that's how I know that Lord has sent me to you so that you may see again, be restored to what you could see before. But more than that, you could receive something more so that you could also be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can see what you've been blind to all along. In that moment, just to prove that the power and authority of Jesus was there, 
Saul got his sight back. Next verse. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, and here's the miracle. He got up and was baptized. In other words, he got up and he recognized his big faults and sins and persecutions against the true God, and he repented. There was no hope in him at that point. He was a broken man, but he was ready to be filled up by God. I've persecuted the church of the living God. I've been working against his mission. I repent. I'm baptized. I I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed and forgiven. And that gift was given to him on the spot. He did not have to prove himself before anybody to receive what God has declared about him, that he was forgiven. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. He's, he's, he's processing this. He's in a good place. He's emotionally, spiritually, physically stable again. And then here's what we would never expect in verse 20. Saul spent several days in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues. Now just remember this. In his coat pocket, there are letters with authority to arrest people for what he is about to do. In the synagogues, he began to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. The very thing that he was going to arrest people for, he is now proclaiming because he was changed and he was transformed. In verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and they asked, isn't, hold on, hold on, hold on, isn't he the one who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them also as prisoners? Isn't this the guy with the past? Yes. But this is the guy who's been changed and transformed for a greater purpose. Last verse, verse 22. But Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus, not just by hinting that Jesus might be the Messiah, but by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And you see, for Saul, this was in front of him all along. Saul was a Pharisee. He was taught in the ways of the Old Testament scriptures. He knew all of the prophecies about the Savior and the Messiah to come. But he had always been blind to something. He had never connected the dots that all the laws that Moses came up with pointed to the perfection that Jesus would win. He never connected the dots that the suffering spoken about in the Old Testament had to be consumed and put on one man for the good of the many. And as Saul, who knew the scriptures so well, as he looked at them for the first time with new eyes, he saw Jesus. He is the Son of God. This is the Messiah of the world. He was changed and he was transformed. Now fast forward 27 years after this moment. 27 years later, the Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Arrested, trialed, and eventually going to be executed. About 27 years after this, he's sitting there in house arrest, not knowing when that day would come, when the executioner would arrive and parade him to the place where he would be beheaded. And in that moment, when he's about 62 years old, the Apostle Paul is writing these letters. You know, he had planted all these churches, and now he has to write them letters to encourage them and to teach them. And he, one of his final letters, if not the final one, was a letter filled with joy and peace. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he wrote them. 
And this is something he wrote in one of his last letters, Philippians chapter 3. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. If people think they're good with God because of what they've done, I have more reasons. He goes on to say all the things that he had done with his life. And then he wraps up with this final thought. Whatever were gains to me. In other words, what before I saw as things that credited God's favor upon me. What I viewed as gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider all the things that I used to see as great. I consider them as garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The righteousness and forgiveness he gives is completely independent of anything I had done. He saw his world and himself differently. Now I was trying to think of ways to connect this with you know, our audience today. And um, I have to do this quickly. Here's a picture real quick. I think we got a picture. No, we don't. Can we actually go back? Sorry. Saul got more than his sight back. He, he actually saw things completely differently once he was changed on that day in Damascus. Now, as we look at this picture here, anyone know what this is? Blow dryer, yeah. Now, some of you, you've already seen this joke, so please don't ruin it for the people around you. But this is a blow dryer, so you push the button, and you, you, know, you, you dry your hands off. This is actually a picture from the blow dryer here at Lakeville North High School. So if you go in the bathroom, you'll see this very thing. The thing is, this, I don't see what you see in this, or what most of you see in this. There was this amazing moment last summer in, uh, where was it? O'Connell Lodge in Rapid City, South Dakota. I remember the place. It's this little hotel right off the interstate. There's this crazy indoor um, water slide. But anyway, that's a different story. I now look at those hand dryers differently because of what I saw in the men's restroom near the pool. I know this is weird, but I remember the day. I remember the place. And now I see hand dryers differently. Here's what I saw in that restroom. I saw the same thing. I don't know if you can see this. It says, push button, receive bacon, and smell bacon. (laughs) And at first I looked at that, I'm like, what in the world? But then I looked at the pictures again. That's bacon. (laughs) And ever since then, I look at the hand dryers. That's bacon. Now, I was looking at this last night. As it turns out, this is nothing new. Like, this was not some crazy person who just, you know, thought of this on their own. This is an internet meme that's out there. So you can, you can search for this. You can find this. There's, there's memes out there. Push button. Receive bacon. So now every time I look at this, I'm re- you know, seeing things. And there's a lot of memes out there. I mean, you can push the button. Receive bacon. You can go all sorts of different directions with this. Here's where I'm going. A lot of... I see things differently now that I saw that. And now you, that's my gift to you today. You're going to see things differently because you saw that. And here's what I know about sermon illustrations. You're going to go into the bathroom after the service and wash your hands, and you're going to be giggling when you dry your hands. <laughs> I see bacon. You're going to be at a restaurant in a couple weeks washing your hands, and you'll dry your hands. <laughs> I see bacon. And you're going to say, oh yeah, Pastor Matt taught me that. But what I want you to do in that moment is something more important. Something that gets to the hope that you have. The hope that isn't just real, but the hope that's for you. You see, in that moment where you see bacon, (laughs) and you kind of giggle to yourself, instead of saying, oh yeah, I see bacon, could you attach a deeper meaning to that and just say to yourself, I see things differently. Because of what Jesus did, I see things differently. 
I have a hope that isn't just real, but I have a hope that is for me. I have a hope that has been planted inside of me. And because of it, I see things differently. Because Jesus died and came back to life, I see things differently. I see my life differently. I see my spouse differently. I see my children, my parents differently. I see my vocation differently. I see death differently. This doesn't all happen at once. But when you base your life based on what Jesus did, when you found your life based on what Jesus did, Jesus can do some amazing things. Your story is not so much about what you say, see, say. It's about what you saw. And I just want to wrap up the series with this thought real quick. You see, the resurrection hope that Jesus won, it's not just for real. The resurrection hope is absolutely for you. It changed your eternity, but it also continues to change your life, transform your life. And it transforms you by seeing things differently. But when God wants to show you, when God shows you things, he wants to sow that in you. so that he can show you maybe what you've been missing all along. And at the end of the day, what we find is this. The dawn of hope was on Easter Sunday when Jesus came back to life. But because of what Jesus does, hope rises every day in you and through you as he sows in you what he shows to you. We close here. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that for all the people here, there's um, so many different things that might swirl through our heads about questions we have. You know, have you been trying to reshape us? Have you been trying to redirect us? Ultimately, the thing we all have in common is that you need to forgive us. We need your forgiveness because of the things that uh, we've wanted, maybe even willfully, to be blind of and to turn a blind eye to. You want to show us things that shape us for our eternal good and sometimes even for our earthly good. So give us the courage and the wisdom to take from this message what we need to do with it today. To see things differently. That death is no longer the end, it's just a doorway. That our relationships, our vocations, everything about us is transformed when you have a place in it. Pray for all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.